So over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about a passage that we find in John 19, in which uh, Jesus, while hanging from the cross, uh, declares something you know, quite, uh, quite well known for all of us. He declares this truth that, uh, that it is finished. And so John 19 on the screen says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, and that's a real important line there. After uh, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, uh, the word is teleo. He said, it is finished, it is paid, it is bought, it is done. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about, well, what, what is that? What is it that he finished? What has he accomplished in our um, according to scripture, or in our lives, or in the, the story of humanity. And in, in the first week we talked about this, we talked about the fact that Jesus has cleansed our conscience. Uh, it's not enough for us to just be forgiven of our sins. Uh, how many of you have ever encountered a person, where you've, you've sinned against a person, and they've forgiven you, but you just can't let it go? How many are like that, Right? You've sinned against somebody, they've said I forgive you, and you just can't let it go. And it doesn't mean that you can't let it go in a, in a weird way, but it, it often uh, manifests itself in you constantly apologizing over and over again, or you're always trying to fix it again, and they're like, it's okay, it's okay. Because the truth is, the, although your sin has been forgiven by that person, in some sense, uh, your conscience isn't clean. And so you need this freedom to be able to walk in this. And so Jesus doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He actually does what the law and what uh, no action of man can do. And that is he actually cleans our conscience. He makes us so pure that we can walk around knowing this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal, and it's a big deal in our hearts and in our minds and as we walk out our lives. So in week one, we talked about this idea of a clear conscience. In week two, we talked about what it meant for us to be the temple of God. I shared with you an important principle when it comes to interpretation, and that is when you're reading the Bible, make sure you know uh, when the Bible is attempting to convey information and when the writer uh, or the, you know, the writer of the scriptures is intending to interpret the world around them. And so we talked about the creation event, we talked about the flood, and then I zoomed in on Hebrews 9 and told you that Hebrews 9 serves as a, as a kind of interpretation. Of, a, of words that were conveyed a long time ago. Exodus gives us all the details about what was required, what the temple service was, what happened, and then, and what the high priest would do. And then we see Hebrews 9, and it interprets all of this and says, all of that stuff, it's a shadow. All of that stuff is, is simply... Uh, you know, some sort of a type that is, that is displayed for you to understand it, but what really happens, happens in the Holy of Holies in heaven. What happens, happens before God. And Jesus, in that sense, uh, in that way, actually goes before God and pays for the sins of humanity. And that's where he washes our conscience clean. So we talked about that, and we talked about what it means to be a temple of God, and that each one of us actually uh, is part of this job to bring heaven to earth. 
Every one of us. Every day we live, we are a connection between heaven and earth because this is where the temple is and that's what the temple served for, is a connection between heaven and earth, between God and humanity. Today, what I want to do is I want to take a turn and I want to talk about what it means to be a royal priesthood, what it means to fulfill this duty. In Hebrews 9, this won't be on the screen, but in Hebrews 9, verse 6, we read this. It says, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. It's really important for us to know that in the Old Testament, there was a high priest. Uh, For us, that high priest is King Jesus, and it will always be. None of us are going to serve as high priest, and that's a great thing. Jesus is the high priest, but there were many uh, other priests, right? There were many other priests, and they had responsibilities outside of just sacrificing animals. I think that's what we think, right? We just we look at priestly duties in the temple, and we think lots of bloodshed, and it seems gross to us, and we kind of were weirded out about it. But the interpretation and the truth, according to Hebrews 9, verse 6, is that they performed the divine worship. What the priests were doing was exactly what we do for the first half of our time together, right? It's divine worship. It's singing. It's praising God. Now, they did it in different ways because worship is not just singing. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, they were... uh, they were responsible for burning the incense. And so there was, this, uh, there was this ritual that was required, okay? And so they worshiped God through this. In Leviticus 24, verses 8 and 9, they set out the holy loaves, the holy consecrated bread. This was a part of their worship. Exodus 27, verses 20 through 21, and Leviticus 24, 3 and 4, they would trim the lamps that were in the temple. And so uh, they had all of these different uh, exercises, different rituals that they went through. And all of that was a part of worship. And so it's really important for us to, to connect a dot that says if the priests in the Old Testament were there to participate in divine worship and God has made us a royal priesthood, which he has done, then what is our responsibility and our duty in this life? To perform worship, right? Is to live out lives of worship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, is where we find this uh, declaration of a royal priesthood. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. But that's not where we stop. Right? Look at what it goes on to say. That you may. You are a royal priesthood for what purpose? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's our responsibility. We're supposed to go into all the world as priests and we're supposed to declare the beauty of who God is. The challenge that we face is what does that look like? We're not trimming candles or wicks in the temple anymore. We're not uh, burning incense, although there's nothing wrong with that, but we're not doing that for God. We're not doing a lot of things that the Old Testament priests would do, but we are still fulfilling the responsibility of a priesthood, which is to worship God. So what does it look like for us 
to worship God? What does it look like for us if Jesus has finished all of this, if Jesus has made us a royal priesthood and the priests are supposed to worship God, what does that look like? Well, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is one passage that we go to a lot. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we're going to have to look at this in a, in a, a greater detail so that we can actually understand what it means to be a living sacrifice. I think we confuse this. I think we make our own definitions and we get happy with our definitions because it doesn't challenge us. And then we're okay with that as our worship. But there's so much more to it. And, and in order to show it to you, I actually want to take you to the ancient Near East. I want to take you to the past. And I want to share with you a, a practice that was common in the pagan world around Israel. Okay, It was something that Israel was not supposed to do, but it was something that was very common. And when you see what happens, and then you see what the Bible is telling us about giving our lives and worshiping God, you'll actually see this very interesting parallel. Uh, the practice is called extispacy. How's that for a word, right? Extispacy. And extispacy is, a, is an interesting idea because what happened in the pagan world was that uh, people wanted to divine, they wanted to know the will of their deity. How many of you want to know the will of God? Of course you do, right? You want to know the will of God? I want to know the will of God. People from all ages past wanted to know the will of God. And what these people did was they sacrificed animals. That wasn't something special or unique just to Israel. They sacrificed animals. And when they sacrificed the animals, I know this is going to get a little bit like biology class when you had to dissect a frog or a pig. So I apologize in advance. But extispacy was where they would sacrifice an animal. And then by looking at the entrails of the animal, they would divine the will of their deity. Let's go to lunch. Right? Okay, so a really strange idea, right? But they would divine the will of their deity by this practice. And, and they made a lot of this, okay? I mean, they made a lot of this. There were three parties of, involved in every uh, practice of extispacy, right? There, were, there was the one seeking divination, right? The one seeking the will of God. There was the deity involved in it. And then there was a specialist, also known as a priest, right? And what that priest did was that priest sacrificed the animal and that priest went through all this stuff and divined the will and then pointed that to the people, okay? Now, uh, it's really interesting how this stuff is going to play into what we read in Scripture because it's not an exact example, but you're going to see that we need to understand the will of God in a very similar way, or rather, the world needs to understand the will of God in a very similar way. Romans, again, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says what? It says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, 
I've already told you that we are priests to God. By the way, there's something really fascinating about becoming a royal priesthood. This is one of the reasons for our series, Paul, Women, and Wives, understanding that what Paul says in Exodus, or Paul says in Ephesians, and Paul says in Galatians, that God has broken down these walls, these barriers, and all these things. God has declared that you are a royal priesthood. Men, women, everybody, right? We are a royal priesthood. This was not the case before. So we're all a royal priesthood. We're all supposed to do this. We're supposed to be a living and holy sacrifice. Now, as I tie all this strange stuff together, I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice, to present your bodies, to lay down your life as a living sacrifice? What does that mean to you? You can share. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Give up worldly things. Now, that's an interesting idea. And as I was talking to Sarah last night, she said the exact same thing. But I want you to understand something very important. It does say to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is the thing that is laid down? It's your body. It's not the worldly possessions you have. There are times when God is going to ask that. But there are also times when God doesn't ask that. Right? Not every one of us is a rich young ruler, so we don't, we're not asked to lay down everything. But God has said, I want you to lay down yourself, right? So what we know is that being a living sacrifice, holy sacrifice, has to do with us, has to do with our bodies, ourselves, right? It doesn't just have to do with other things. It could probably be a part of worship, but this spiritual worship is you laid down. Does that mean dying? In some sense, sure. But what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, in the parallel between this, it's a really interesting thing to note that we are not only the priest, but we're also the sacrifice. And this is really strange, right? We're the priest and we're the sacrifice. And what's amazing, and I'm going to show this to you as we work it through, what's amazing is that when you read our lives... You are supposed to be showing the world the will of God. Okay? When people read the fruit that you produce, they should be able to track back to the root. Right? So the the fruit reveals what the root is. How many of you know that? The scripture says that a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and a good tree can't produce bad fruit, right? It's, this is how it works. A good tree produces good fruit. And so if there is good fruit on the vine, what is it revealing? A good root. It is revealing who we belong to. As the sacrifice, we are tracking back our laying down our lives, and we're actually seeing what it is that God's will is. And God's will can be summed up in the most simple thing. Love. I know, oversimplified, but we'll get into the details of what that looks like. So we are not only the priests, we are not only the specialists, but we're also the very sacrifice, and the world at large is the one seeking the divination. They're the ones seeking the will of God, and we start to show them this by everything we do. So again, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I urge you, brethren by, the, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, 
be different. Something about this means a change in our bodies. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, what does it say? Prove what the will of God is. To who? To everybody around. The Israelites were called to live by the law of God and live by his statutes, and that set them apart from the rest of the world. It made them unique. You know it's not changed? We are a unique people because of what we do and how we live and what it means to be this sacrificial people, what it means to be a people truly of love. And so we prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Just in case you were wondering what the will of God is, it is always good, it is always acceptable, and it is always perfect. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, just as he chose him, us in him, in Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in what? In love. We're supposed to be holy and blameless. What are we also supposed to do according to Romans 12, 1 and 2? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless, holy and unto God, okay? This is what we're doing, and we're doing all of that in love. Now, how is it that people are actually able to, to read these things on us, right? Do they just read the fruit? Do they just read the actions in our life? Well, well yes. Yes, but they're reading a specific action, and they're reading, reading specific values inside of our life. They're reading the actions and the values that God himself, according to Jeremiah, wrote on our hearts. See, this ecstasy is very interesting because if we read this through that ancient practice and we understand what's happening, when you opened up the animal, supposedly you were able to divine the will of God. And in this case, when people discover the heart of a Christian, they see the will of God because the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God are written there in every way. Now, what does this substitute? It substitutes something important. It does not do away with God's law because it's on your heart. But it is important to realize that it, in some sense, did away with the teaching of the law. What do you mean, Nathan? What do you mean? It means that you can be taught a lot of things and you can ignore it. I know this. <laughs> You can be taught a lot of things and ignore it, but if it is here, if it is written on your heart, no matter how hard you try, you can't shake it. It's always there. There's something poking at you. There's something calling you. There's something pushing you. And listen, when the world dissects who you are, they see something beautiful. They see the will of a good and pleasing God, right? So what, what is this look like when, when, the world, when the world observes it inside of us? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. This is the great command, right? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Everything that can be seen, everything that can be dissected and proven is going to show in your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is awesome. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what's written on your heart, church? 
Love God and love people, right? Love God and love people. I know that that's a generic thing that's said on Christian radio all the time, right? But there is, there's important truth to it. There's important truth to it. How we love people is where Christians want to buck. How we love people is where we lay down our lives, self-sacrificial lives, a race to the back of the line. How we love people is where we often go, eh, I'm not so sure. We all agree love, but listen, church, the world agrees with love, generically, but we are called to love in a different way. John 13, 34 and 35 says that this is the proof. This is the fruit that proves the root, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Now, how did Jesus love us? He laid down his life for us. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Once they see the law that's written on your heart, once they have practiced their, uh, their pursuit that the world is always in pursuit of, find out if there's a God and find out what he wants. The world has always been searching for it, even atheists, right? All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The fruit that we're producing, the very thing written on our heart, the very thing that the world sees is love. And it is love for one another in a bold way. John 15, 13 goes further. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Let's go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. He's laying down his life for his friends. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Is that laying down your life? So what are you supposed to be doing? Laying it down for who? Others. Laying it down for your friend. Laying it down. Listen, if Jesus was a friend of sinners, if Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners and laid down his life in that situation, who should you lay down your life for? Everybody. Right? There's nobody, there's nobody that is outside of this call, right? And so we are to be a living and holy sacrifice, and this is acceptable to God. And this, by the way, church, makes us the royal priesthood that we are. It's not about coming into a building and performing ritual. It's not about those things. It's not about, even though it pains me to say these things because I don't want to give you an excuse to not do it, but it's not about how much you read your Bible. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because first of all, the Bible doesn't tell us you are saved by reading the Bible. Okay, that's important, right? We are saved by grace through faith. But where did we learn that truth from? The Bible, right? It's also really important that you set yourself free from your, maybe your overtly rigorous uh, plan in your head of how you understand Scripture for this reason. How you study Scripture, how you read Scripture. Do you know that we are like, the first in history to have the Bible so readily available to us in every way. That before the printing press, people didn't just pick up a scroll and read Hebrews. Right? They didn't do it. They didn't just find these ancient documents and go, oh, well, I got, I got time, I'll copy it for myself. Didn't happen. Right? It's really important when we get into this series on Genesis that we start talking about what an oral culture was. 
and how they actually view documents, because they view documents very differently than we do, right? But it's really important that you know this, because this is not what saves you, right? It's not ritual. It's not the hours you spend in prayer, although you should spend that time in prayer. It's, it's not about those things. It's not about how much money you give, but God wants a cheerful giver, right? It's not about those things. What it is about is you laying down your life and being the priest that God has called you to be. And laying down your life means loving others. It doesn't mean go off and off yourself. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying be a living sacrifice. How can you be a living sacrifice? By every day following what is written on your heart, what God has already commanded you and told you to do and to be. This is a passage from um, John Walton in a very fascinating book. Uh, He says, across the ancient world, the image of God did the work of God on earth. An Israelite, uh, in an Israelite context, as portrayed in the Hebrew Bible, people, corporately, are the image of God in that they embody his qualities and do his work. The image defines human identity. They are symbols of his presence and act on his behalf as his representatives, his priests, as they are in relationship to him. I tie all this together now with the image of God, the Imago Dei, because we are the only creature made in the image of God. And what makes us the image of God is not some physical attribute. God has a mighty right arm. Well, only those with mighty right arms are in the image of God. No, it's not a physical attribute. It's also not his qualities. How many of you know you'll never be omnipresent? Moms, no matter how hard you try, you will never be omnipresent. Your kids are going to burn something down one day, okay? It's just going to happen. You're not omniscient. Moms. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Anyway, so you're not omniscient. You don't know everything, right? Teenagers, you too, right? You you don't know everything. We'll never have that. So the image of God is not in his physical demeanor. The image of God is not in his attributes necessarily. The image of God is discovered when we look back to Genesis and find out what we were called to do. Be image bearers reflecting the glory of God into the world and doing a task. We were rulers. We were priests. Guess what Jesus reset on the cross when he said it is finished? He made you a priesthood again. He made you a priesthood this time in the image of the second Adam of Jesus and not in the one who failed. He has given us this great Uh, ability to go into all the world. And so for us, back to John Walton's statement, people corporately are the image of God in that they embody his qualities and do his work. Embody his qualities. What is God? God is love, according to the scripture, and we do his work. We love people. We lay down our lives. What is laying down our lives? It's a true act of love. The image defines humanity. They are symbols. We are symbols of God's presence and act on his behalf. Last week's message, heaven coming to earth. This is is tied together in this amazing way. So this strange uh, pagan ritual, ecstasy, right? This, This reading of the sacrifice so that we can divine the will of God. 
Here's what you need to know. God made you so that the world might divine his will. Not so much divine it, just see it. It's that plain, it's that simple. We prove what the will of God is every day of our lives if we are loving our neighbor and loving our God. Amen? We prove it. We show the world there's something here. And the scripture tells us over and over, we will be known by our fruit, the fruit that we produce. This is why it's so important that we, uh, we exhibit the qualities of God and the things that he has called us to do and the love that he has told us to participate in. And we are there to reflect those things written on our heart into the world. Every one of us is called to this. So Jesus has done a great many things on the cross, right? He, is, he has cleaned our conscience. He has made us a temple. And then he has made us priests and sacrifice. Think about this. It's the most strange system ever. I am a temple, a priest, and the sacrifice. That's an interesting idea. But all of my life is designed to be lived out in this love and this care for the people around me. I want to encourage you as you go out today to really look and see what fruit you're producing. I want you to test it first. Maybe you should ask the people living in your house, what fruit do you see in my life? In a business setting, we would do something like a 360-degree review, and, and we would ask our customers and our co-workers and our bosses and those people under us. We'd ask all this, and we'd seek a review and see how we're doing. And sadly, the Christian world that's supposed to be deeply accountable doesn't seem to want to know the answer. Because we have adopted a worldly idea that says, my relationship with God is between me and God. See your way out of it, right? But that's not actually true according to the scripture. Hello. That's not actually true according to the scripture. You and I are accountable to one another. You and I are supposed to be uh, asking the other to sharpen us and to help us because we can do better. So I, I encourage you, I challenge you to go out today and I ask you to look at the fruit that is being produced in your life. Ask those who love you around you, what fruit are you producing? Would they say that you're a person who loves God and loves people? Or would they say that you're a person who just always contends with things and is mad and is frustrated, always depressed, always focused on the world, always stressed, all of that. Those aren't the fruit that you're supposed to produce. And what is the problem with the, that bad fruit? What is the problem? Listen to me, please. Give me your attention. I know the kids are in here. What's the problem with bad fruit? As Christians, it is not that you are not a Christian. The problem with bad fruit is that you're not listening. The problem with bad fruit is that you're not reading what's on your heart. The problem with the bad fruit is that you've gotten co-opted by foolish things in the world. The problem with bad fruit is that you're sowing bad seed when you know who you belong to. And you know the seed that you're, you're called to, to throw and to plant. Amen. Trust me when I say, if God tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's not taking that back the, the second you do something stupid. 
Hallelujah. <laughs> right? He's not taking that back the second you do something foolish or stupid. Instead, he's going to come beside you and he's going to say, you want to walk with me? You want to do it my way? You want to follow after me? You want the world to divine my will by your actions? You can do it my way. Church, our fruit should reveal the root that we belong to. Our fruit should reveal the root that we belong to. And I pray that you will examine that this today, this week, as you go forward. We, we're all in this, uh, in this game together where we're supposed to be evangelizing the world and telling everybody of Jesus. And one of the most important ways that we can do that is to live out the things we preach. When we were doing Father's Group, Merle used to tell me all the time, he said, people have to talk the talk and walk the walk. And that's the truth. You can't just talk the talk. And you, you don't get to do what Francis of Assisi said. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if you have to. You have to. People look at good people all the time and go, wow, that person's a good person. They never connect that with Jesus. The way they connect it with Jesus is the gospel, which is a message. Romans 10 says they can't know or believe unless they hear. And so they need preachers sent to them. And in that respect, y'all are preachers, right? You're all sent to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. But when they hear that message, they should see the actions behind it. When they hear that truth, they should see the fruit in your life. And when that happens, I promise you, that fruit will, de will determine or will reveal the root that you belong to.